Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 64 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today we have a fellow Australian. Uh, this is Dr. Lucy Burns who joins us and she's one half of the real life medicine with her colleague, Dr. Mary. And I came to sort of, obviously, Dr. Lucy and Dr. Mary came on my radar through a number of the Australian Facebook groups. And she was also recommended by uh, Dan and Erica. So that was a really great to have Jackie, a fellow Australian, on the podcast today. And I think they've been on the Keto Woman podcast as well, haven't they? A long time ago, right near the beginning. A long time ago. Yeah. Mm. I remember listening to them on that. I, I listened to their podcast. I started at the beginning, so I'm still catching up. But, um, yeah, Dr. Lucy has some great – well, they both have some great metaphors that they use. Yeah, and certainly the what I've seen on the social media that Dr. Lucy was having this sort of stream of consciousness, as I would call it, on her Facebook Lives and, and this sort of thing. So, And it's always really good, I think, you know, to connect. And when you connect with um, certainly – people that have not only a lived experience of you know dealing with weight issues and using low-carb keto to to manage that but also the fact that Dr Lucy and and Dr Mary are general practitioners or in the states um, that'd be family physicians so it's really good to have someone who knows you know with authority their own lived experience but can put it in a term that's approachable for in, in medicine with authority yeah, yeah. Um, we're seeing more of these doctors, GPs, um, who are in the community but able to help with those of us that struggle with weight, those of us that struggle with type two diabetes, and and as you often say and, and talk about, is that hope that you can change and you can do something rather than just going down a road full of drugs that are going to lead to more drugs. And I think that's wonderful, wonderful that people can access that, um, both as them as GPs, but also um, they have their own real-life medicine. Yeah, and I think that that's a really, a really good thing is the fact that she is able to bring that lived experience as well as putting it into practical terms for her practice, you know, for, for patients that come to her through um, through real-life medicine. So we'll hear more about, obviously, what real-life medicine is um, with her and Dr Mary Barson um, in their practice as we get to the interview. 
So, Louise, do you want to tell us more about Dr. Lucy? Dr. Lucy runs a weight loss clinic called Real Life Medicine and is booked out for some months. Obviously, you know, really good testament to her, her business. This is an inspiration to create an online learning platform to share this information far and wide. Lucy also has muscular dystrophy, which impairs her mobility. In her 20s, she managed her weight with exercise. Alas, that is no longer possible. She became overweight and obese and insulin resistant. Two years ago, she lost 20 kilos by adopting a low-carb lifestyle and more importantly has maintained this. Dr. Lucy is known for her positive can-do nature and is an eternal optimist. Despite this, she's experienced depression for many years and is now in remission thanks to her lifestyle changes. She practices meditation daily. Well, she says at least second daily. Dr. Lucy also speaks at conferences for doctors on weight management as well as events for the general public and is now considered an expert in this field. Dr. Lucy is a mum of two teenage girls. Well, need we say any more, Jackie? <laughs> Let's yeah. hear some more from Dr. Lucy. Welcome, Dr. Lucy, to the Fantasy Keto Podcast. It's fabulous to have you here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Louise. It was a pleasure to be invited. Well, listeners, as you can hear, I have a fellow Australian, uh, Dr. Lucy. Um, just remind us where in the world you are. So I live on the beautiful Mornington Peninsula just south of Melbourne, uh, which, you know, like half the world has been in lockdown for the last five million days. Uh, but I'm very lucky because it is, a, you know, if you're going to be locked down, it's a lovely part of the world to be. And that's really good. And, you know, this is unfortunately Melbourne has the title of the most lockdown city. But um, something, you know, other than, you know, the claim to fame, as you said, the Mornington Peninsula is a is a lovely rural part of Melbourne. You're about two hours from Melbourne city centre? Yeah, probably a bit closer because of freeways, maybe an hour. But it's, you know, it feels like, like I'm, I'm looking out my window now as I talk to you and we I can see a horse in my paddock and there's a little cat that's just running past the barn. So it's very rural. And uh, we've got a little cow and it really is a little cow. It's a miniature cow. So it's about the size of a Shetland. And he's he's got the very, very imaginative name of Moo. <laughs> so here's my joke. <laughs> <laughs> here's my cow, my cow joke. Two, two cows in a field and one said Moo and the other one said, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny yeah <laughs> well, that's really good so why don't you start take us back so how did your low-carb journey start well I think probably like lots of people so there was it was um I was always either on a diet or on a bender so I've done lots and lots of diets over the world, over the time, you know, I started, I think when I was about 16 with the Scarsdale diet and I did the Israeli army diet and I did the um, Dukan diet and I just did, you know, I did Weight Watchers, I did Jenny Craig, Light and Easy, blah, blah, blah. And I really had this all or nothing mentality. So I literally was on a diet or on a bender eating everything I could before I would start the diet again. So consequently, I was up and down my weight, 20 kilos, it would oscillate between. And every time I lost it, I vowed I would never, ever put it back on. 
And anyway, one day, uh, a couple of years ago now, about maybe four years ago, I was, I was you know, at one of my heaviest. I, the heaviest is um, it was it, it was the heaviest I was even heavier than when I was pregnant. And for me, that was massive because I put on 30 kilos in my pregnancy. And so then once I read, that was like a threshold and it was like, oh, my God, I've got to do something. So I was one day sitting, I went on holidays with some friends and I was piously eating my carrot sticks and offering them to my friend who's going, no, thank you. And I'm looking at her and I go, how come you look so thin? What's going on? What have you been doing? And she said, I just ditched the carbs. She was a bit sort of coy about it. And she was another doctor as well. And because we were there for a few days, I'm watching what she's eating like a hawk. I'm going, oh, my God, she's having like steak with butter and, and I'm eating lettuce and she's having, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I just, so I just grilled her. And, look, she was one of the really smart girls at school. So I thought if you know about it, then it must be good. And then um, I thought, all right, I'm going to give it a crack because, you know, it was, I was still in diet mode, so it was just going to be another diet, right? And then... Um, then I guess I, I started looking a little bit more into it because I just loved it. And I thought, right, what's going on here? I've never loved a diet as much as this. And then, of course, I worked out, well, you know, low carbs not really a diet. It's a way of life. And so that 20 kilos, I lost that and it stayed off now for four years, which is like that's actually the miracle, not the losing the 20 kilos. I could do that easily. But, yeah, the keeping it off. So, um you know, uh, and uh, yeah, I think a few people have said this that once you see it, you can't unsee it. You, you, once you see what it can do, it's like uh, everything stopped. All that brain chatter about food, all those discussions I would have every night with myself about, you know, the chocolate in the cupboard or the biscuits or all of that sort of stuff, it just went quiet. For a while, it didn't stay quiet, but it went quiet for a long time to the point where I could then sort myself out. How did you reconcile, obviously being a, a general practitioner or in the States, you know, like a family doctor, yeah. how did you reconcile the fact that you could actually eat fat, yeah. saturated <laughs> fat too, and you weren't, you know, the whole fact that, you know, the, the fact is that you've been, may well have in your medical practice, been recommending to, to cut the fat, you know, to be low fat, but yet, you know, you... Yeah, butter back. Totally. And I think um, you're absolutely right. Like if I look back to what I was recommending even five or six years ago, it was. It was low fat. Here's a statin. Sort out your cholesterol. Um, and now, I, now it's a completely different practice. I think, you know what a bit of it was, is that I think I do have that little bit of rebel in me and it was like, right, I'm going to look into this and I'm going to eat this fat. because, and, and, in fact, that's why it felt okay to do it the first. It was sort of naughty, so it didn't feel like I was on a diet because I was being a bit naughty by having all this fat and cream and all this stuff. And then when I kind of went, right, well, you know, my friend, trusted friend, I'm just going to look a bit further because, you know, I need to do a bit more. And so that's when I, I then thought, right, I'll do what other people have done and do do, do my reading and and read what other people have researched. And that's when I, I sort of worked out, ah, oh, bloody hell, everything that I knew about dieting, everything that I knew about health was wrong. Mm. And, you know, that was my epiphany, if you like. And, in fact, when I first started my this, because, uh, of course, like a lot of people, uh, you know, I have a business now centered around low carb living and it was called Epiphany Medical Weight Loss because I honestly just 
felt like I had an epiphany. I've since changed the name for several reasons. One, some people don't know what an epiphany is, and that's fine. And a couple of other people were pronouncing it epiphany, and I thought, I'm not having that. <laughs> <laughs> clearly, I like clearly, that. I know. Clearly, the, the Catholic in me, you know, understands about epiphanies, so you know, I'm repressing Catholicism. You know, so. Yes, yes, but no, no, the epiphany. But now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now you have real life medicine and really that's what it is you you know it's real and it's life and you know you've got your got your medical practice so and yeah. in your medical practice you're doing the education and you're prescribing low carb as a as a therapy absolutely it has completely revolutionized the way that i practice so um, i spend a lot of time now just helping people with lifestyle measures so you know educating about first of all what low carb is why saturated fat is not the enemy we thought it was you know and being able to then give people who are worried some you know literature some scientific literature and detailing that you know being able to break it down from those crazy scientific terms to layman's terms and it is like it's so incredibly satisfying to de-prescribe, to take people off medications, to give people the opportunity to be able to manage their life without necessarily needing medication. You know, some people still do. So, um, and some people are not ready for change as much as I would love them to be. They're not quite ready yet, but at least they know it's an option. So that, that I think is the one thing that I, you know, I, initially I was so enthusiastic. I thought everybody, everyone's just going to do this. I mean, why wouldn't you? It's such, so great. And you can re- stop all these medications and you can lose weight and you can keep it off. Surely everyone would want to do this. But, of course, you know, I was ready for change and not everyone is. No. And you can't push that along, can you? No. No. But I think just remaining open and no and and them knowing that if they ever want to change there is another option for them yeah which is massive yeah and that's the two things i think there's two things from our previous other guests you know that are medical doctors and that's really where they say we have to meet our patient where they are at and it's obviously your enthusiasm and you know your reinvigoration in, in really your gift now is you know this sort of wellness, restorative, restorative health. So meeting them where they are, and the second one was really about people who knew that there was this option, but being denied an option, mm. but knowing that you're actually giving and empowering people to have this option. I think that's the power now in your practice is to meet people where they are and to give the people the option. So you must be immensely proud of, you know, how this has uh, actually changed your career and focus. Absolutely, Louise. You have, have absolutely hit the nail on the head. But also recognising that even that, that it is evolving all the time because, again, I sort of rather naively went in thinking, oh, well, you know, I, I've done low carb, I can do it, it's, you know, it's worked for me, it's really easy, and I just thought everyone would be the same. and really understanding that there is almost like two groups of people. There are people that just go in, crack on, do it, lose their 10, 20, 50 kilos. But there are other people who, for whatever 
reason and it's it's all their their stories in their head their psychology that struggle that do find it hard to maintain and helping working with that that's actually the thing I love the most helping people overcome their own internal blocks um you know and, and understanding why they've got them like they're so very deep in their subconscious often related to you know stories from their childhood and all sorts of things that they just can't understand why they can't do it it's like they know what to do I just can't do it mm. so I are you still in general practice yeah so is 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 real life medicine and general practice or is it a separate? it's sort of separate so I work within a just a standard bricks and mortar general practice and I do do some standard general practice although I would say that the majority I have a very big leaning to mental health um but my passion is really real life medicine, which is our online platform. And Mary and I um, have this little joke where we keep talking about how we want to do more real life medicine so we can do less medicine in real life. Okay. <laughs> so how did you and Mary meet? Oh, we actually met at a low carb conference. So um, a couple of years ago, Low Carb Down Under ran a conference um, on low carb for doctors which I was speaking at and I just happened to sit next to her and we got chatting and there were just these you know when you have coincidences or synchronicity and look every now and then I do a little bit of non-doctory woo-woo and I just love it so Mary's name is Mary Louise Barson and my name is Lucy Mary Burns so we just had this little synchronicity with our names and then her dad is an anaesthetist, and he actually anaesthetized my daughter, which is really unusual because we live on opposite sides of the of this very big bay, and it just so happened that we'd taken our child. She had this terrible skin ulcer um, due to this nasty, nasty infection that is very common over that side of the bay and not common over our side. So we'd actually gone to seek some help over there, and he anaesthetized her, um, and he'd used some hypnotherapy which was then interesting because in independently, Mary and I had both done a hypnotherapy course by the same teacher that Mary's dad had done. So there was just all these little things where, and then Mary said to me, I think I need to get a side hustle. So we, we started Real Life Medicine as a side hustle, but yes, it's grown to way more than a side hustle now. Excellent. I love the movie Sliding Doors, and that's yeah. that's really what that is, wasn't it? So it's just all these sliding doors moments. So, and it's really great because certainly, as you know, you know the Australian arm of low carb, you know, in terms of you know, what we're trying to build, obviously globally. Yes, you know, in your little patch of the world, is actually doing really well. You know, in terms of you're know, connecting and building this community, and it's really good to sort of see you know your good friends with Dan and Erica, mm -hmm. and um, certainly from Aussie Aussie Low Carb, and you know you're as you said you're connecting with the um, Rod, um, yep. who is obviously Low Carb Down Under. So the platforms that you are connecting in with and building up. Do you see that there's going to be a shift in terms of medical practice, you know, the focus of using therapeutic restriction of you know, carbohydrates? Yeah, I think um, it, it is slow. Um, doctors are very sceptical for some reason. Um, and I think that initially low carb was thought to be, you know, very fringy. It was this big fringe element. But over time, 
particularly now that more people like the patients are, are doing so well on it and not just doing well for a few months, doing well for years, it's very hard as a doctor to ignore that. Um, and I think it is the fact that like James Mukey, who, you know, is Australian of the Year last year, he's a massive advocate of, of low-carb. Um, and, in fact, there's a thing on SBS tonight um, on um, in Australia, so I'll be watching that. Um, so those sorts of things do go, go uh, are helpful for, I guess, the just turning the tide with, with medicine. The problem still lies in medicine, though, of the absolute dominance of cholesterol as a major player in heart disease. And so any, because for a lot of people who are doing low carb, their cholesterol often goes up. For some people, it goes up a lot. And, and doctors are very fearful of this, very fearful because, and, and in, there has to be some consideration to the fact that we actually don't know what happens to people long-term who have cholesterol numbers of 12 or 15, you know, in that lean mass hyperresponder category because we've never studied them. Mm. So there hasn't been any studies on people doing a low-carb lifestyle with these very high cholesterol numbers. So I do understand that there is some reticence around that. Um, but what I think is that that, that little subset is the minority. The majority of people just do so beautifully. You just see their liver function get better, their, you know, their cholesterol, not their um, their glucose markers get better, their blood pressure get better. You know, obviously they're losing weight, but it's not the it's not the number on the scales that I'm ever interested in. It's the improvement in their metabolic health. And it, it literally is life-changing. Hmm. As a non-doctor and a non-medical professional, to my way of thinking, if you're eating real food that we would have eaten for thousands, millions of years, then the cholesterol going up should be normal. Yeah. You would think that's, you know, that's my layperson's yeah. take on it. Yeah, you would think. The confounder comes again when, when there are some people who, 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 who do – half and half, <laughs> you know, they're half low carb and then they're half not. And it's like, right, what am I going to do with you? So they're, they're tricky. Um, and again, the idea being if we can perhaps help them manage their psychology that is blocking them, that's stopping them becoming low carb full time and work out what is it, why, why is it that you keep, you know, that falling off the wagon phrase that is a phrase that is commonly used, but it's not super. It's not a super helpful phrase, um, but you know, helping people work through those so that they can just do it more and more and more consistently. Hmm. And listeners will, um, in the future, will, will sort of be hearing from Dr. Rob Size, and he was sort of actually um, saying that there's two parts to it. You know, that the the weight loss is obviously part physiology, which you, you know you can manage. You know, in terms of the glucose function and, and liver control and all that sort of stuff, and the psychology. Mm. He said it's really around the psychology that impacts on the on the physiology, and it really gets it really does speak to what you're saying that this is a mental health. You know, that you're starting with the mental health, which impacts on the decisions to to choose the foods that you're choosing, and you know, childhood trauma is a, is a classic 
So, uh, and do you spend and, a lot of time with that? Yeah. Do you like, you know, with the mental health? Yeah, so that's really where it, where my practice has changed over the last few few years is really recognizing the the in, impact of of people's psychology, um, and and as I said, that's where we talk about maybe the stories in their head, which uh, you know phrases they've been perhaps told, um, and then the tools that they use to manage their mind. So you know, people feel really guilty for. Um, emotional eating or you know they might be on a you know and again this is diet culture so diet culture teaches you that you have to be perfect or you've broken your diet or you've cheated or there's all this sort of really fairly judgmental language around it but in actual fact when people use food it's it's simply to soothe some sort of emotional trauma so and I use that word trauma very broadly because it doesn't have to be, you know, people think of trauma as being, you know, intense childhood abuse. It doesn't have to be like that at all. It is really something as simple as an unmet childhood need where maybe you're worried, you know, you you had periods of time in your childhood where you were lonely. And so you're worried that, you know, as an adult, you're going to be lonely. And those sorts of triggers are the things that we then soothe with food. Um and, you know, I think it's really tricky because in actual fact, we're taught to use food to soothe. It's modelled to us by our parents. It's modelled to us by our teachers. It's modelled, it was modelled and probably still is in many places by doctors. You know, if a child comes in and they're scared and frightened and they don't want a vaccination, well, they get the vaccination, they get a lollipop at the end. So there's this, you know, whole reward set up um, coming in and, you know, parents will bribe, you know, and I've done it, God, we're all human, but, you know, use food to bribe your kids to do things. Um, so, again, that sets up that reward pathway for the future. Or if they're sad or lonely, um, you know, people will cheer, you cheer yourself up with ice cream or chocolate or whatever. And so you have to really address that. You can't just take the tool away and not give them another tool because that's how, that's how failure happens. You know, that's where people go, I failed, I can't do it, I need my food. It's just giving them other tools and allowing them the time to really experiment with that and doing it in a really just nurturing, supportive, non-judgmental way, which is the opposite, I think, of, as I said, every, every diet club I've been in. It was all about hopping on the scales and getting the finger wagged at me because I'd eaten a cake or something and, you know, put on half a kilo. So, yeah. And I find that people find it just even if you eat off plan mm. um uh, as i say and i had a major binge at the weekend with my birthday mm. um you just get back to it um you just get straight back to it and it's like nothing changes it's it's it there's a little bump in the road isn't there like one of these speed humps as you're driving along and you just slow down go over the bump and then uh, we're off again yeah I just and I think people find that a relief that they can do that as well. Yeah. And I think it's tricky because again, you know, diet culture has taught us all or nothing. And that was certainly my experience is perfect, perfect on a diet, losing weight, being really restrictive and very rigid and very, very determined and using a lot of willpower. But as soon as that ran out, I was on a bender eating everything I could in sight before I had to go back onto another diet. So, you know, often I liken it to, um, 
you know cruise control these days you've got that sort of little line assist that keeps you just in the middle of your lane yeah that's what I feel like my life's like now it used to be lurching from one side of the road to the other just careering down out of control and now I'm just I'm now in my lane and I've got lane assist Hmm. so those insights that you had about the like the mental health in terms of that childhood trauma and um, you know, the the self soothing, did you sort of use that to reflect on where you had gotten to in your in your diet journey? Did you sort of not to say that you have to? This is a therapy oh, no, no. sort of session. You have to sort of <laughs> spill spill all the beans, you know? Um, yeah. But how has that informed your I suppose your reflection on where those perhaps you know things were in your life that led you to being um, where you were? Yeah. So I think for me, a lot of it, um, it came, there was a, a bit of, there was a, quite a bit of scarcity mindset, which is interesting because I didn't grow up in a household that had no sugar. We, in fact, we had quite a bit, like more than perhaps my kids have had, you know, we had cordial all the time. But what we did have, what I, what I did have was two brothers. And so if there was a box of Cocoa Pops, they would all be gone. So it was in my head, if there was ever a block of chocolate, they would wolf it down. So I would always have to kind of get mine in first before it disappeared. So even though we had other sort of, you know, as I said, cordial was fairly on tap. And, and you know, my mum, we didn't have a lot of processed food, but my mum baked a lot of cakes and things like that. So if in my head, I kind of think there's, I've got two arms. I had that absolutely that addiction to processed sugary food and that that everything in my life was about that you know every function I went to it was all about the food you know conference was all about the food the conference is boring doesn't matter because I'm going to be having morning tea afternoon tea lunch tea everything all the time eating non-stop so um, barbecues were all about the food and so there was that component and then there was definitely that scarcity. I've got to eat everything before I'm on a diet or before everyone else eats it. So definitely unpacking those two was really helpful and recognising that, I, I mean, I did a lot of, um, yeah, uh, sad, sad, sad eating, I guess, if I was sad or lonely. So, you know, I did a couple of placements where, I was by myself for months, you know, in in the country and you'd finish work and you'd go home to your little apartment and you'd just be by yourself. And so I'd be cheering myself up with a big bowl of pasta and a giant thing of ice cream and I could eat as much as I want because there was nobody there to kind of do any regulation. And so that was what I, how I sort of looked forward to things. Everything that I wanted to look forward to involved food. Sitting on the couch reading a book was all about the packet of licorice bullets that would be with it. Um, even a long journey in the car was all about, you know, well, will we have Maltesers or will I have fantails? So the food was always the, hot, the, the main player in my life and everything else was secondary. Um, and I've just changed that around. Food, food's not the highlight anymore. It's just a side dish. It's, still out of in the, it's over there somewhere. You know, it's nice. And I'll often say to people, you know, because again, we've got all these phrases, you know, food brings people together. And it doesn't really, because if suddenly there was no food and suddenly we all just all got our nutrition from a tablet, we would all still get together because it's actually humans that bring humans together. And food's food's a sideshow. It's not the main event. And I think we need to kind of just keep that in mind. Mm. Yeah. It is a shift though, isn't it? Because when we sort of, we're prioritising the nutrients, you know, like now we're sort of saying, 
we've got to prioritise and make it nutrient dense. As you said, you know, if I'm going to have a pill, then it needs to be mm. nutrient dense. And it's around, I think, nothing more than a global pandemic to really highlight social connections. Mm. That it's the people that bring people together. As you said, it's the, you know, it's the people that bring it together. The, as you said, the food is on the sideshow, but it's, still nice it's still yummy and i think that's the great thing about low carb is that it's bringing all this you know i've got my taste back mm. i feel happy and full and satiated because i'm eating this yummy food but it's not as you said the main event you know the social it, connections it's not um it's not highly it's not processed because it's that ultra processed food that is what that's what i was looking for like i wasn't looking for at these events, I wasn't looking for, you know, the the roast beef. I was looking for the highly processed, what could I have, maybe a croissant, maybe a donut, maybe a, some sort of Danishy thing. Um, oh, you know, I'm a bit sick of sweet stuff, that I'll go and get a toasted sandwich. Like it was always processed. So, hmm. you know, this need, constant need for processed food, once I stopped that, like, and, and really thought a lot more with that reflection about what, why I was being driven for it. And I think it's it's multi-pronged. So I think the drive for processed food is because food scientists engineer it to be highly palatable and release dopamine and be highly addictive. But it's also nutrient deplete. So I'm quite sure my body was deficient in nutrients. And I really didn't prioritize protein. Why would I be prioritizing protein when I was just spending my whole life trying to get donuts? So Changing those three things has just made an enormous difference to my health, but my my the energy I spend in my brain thinking about food. I've become one of those people that doesn't think about food. Like it's like a, that's the miracle. Yeah, I've got to get there. Yeah, I still think about food, but I I was thinking because you were saying about donuts and croissant and Danish, and that was never my focus. So my focus is always this the savoury sweets as um megan pfeffer says. oh yeah 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 savory um, sugars so yeah. <laughs> yeah say savory sugar yeah it's the um the bread and the pasta and the potatoes they were my they were my go-to things but again they're nutrient deplete there's nothing in them that's good for you and the wheat it's is so addictive that you can't help but eat it yeah Absolutely. And I think it's even sneakier because people will tell you, oh, but bread's healthy. Just get the whole grain or potatoes. They can't be bad for you. I mean, I don't think anybody's out there trying to pretend that um, Maltesers and licorice bullets are good for you. But I think for the savory sweet people, it it is a little trickier to come to terms with at times because you're kind of thinking, surely rice can't be that bad. I mean, it's rice. But when you see what rice does to your glucose, then you can see that rice is, is, just as unhelpful as as glucose and sugar. Yeah, yeah. And there's no nu- no nutrients in it, so your body is going to be craving. Mm. It's going to be sending you searching for food because you actually mm. haven't don't have what you need to function. Correct. Do you think you actually had like a sugar addiction? Now oh, that we totally. know about sugar addiction, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Absolutely, 100%. My name's Lucy Burns and I'm a sugar addict. Um, I I don't eat a lot of sugar anymore because of that because so 
I know what you're saying, Jackie, with, you know, having a, a, a blip in the road, if you like. And Mary Mary talks about it beautifully. She she talks about this idea instead of falling off the wagon, which just sort of implies that you fell off and you're just lying in the grass and you've, you can't, and it's just you've got no control. She talks about you're actually in charge of your all-terrain vehicle and you may have driven off your path, but you could just drive back on. So as long as you drive back on reasonably quickly, then you you still are going on the journey that you want to be on. But for me, um, I, I don't eat a lot of um, uh, alternate sugar products because, again, I, I can't regulate. I'm not very good at regulating that stuff. So it, it, what it, what's helpful, though, is that I don't care because in the past I would have cut off my right leg if you'd said you can't eat chocolate again. I actually don't care anymore. I, the peace of mind that I have is so valuable to me. The clarity that I've got, the, you know, I, I'm not having those conversations about will I, won't I? I, I, maybe I will, that bargaining that you can spend hours in your life wasting time on. And I, I just don't have that anymore. So, but but if I, eat a, if I eat a lot of alternate sweeteners, then that comes back. So for me, um, and I have this little analogy that I use of fluffy. I don't know if you've heard me talk about it, but um, I think of fluffy is the three-headed dog in Harry Potter and he's sound asleep. He's that giant um, Cerberus dog and he's asleep when the music is playing. I think it's the flute or something. And so I feel like my fluffy is asleep when I don't have sweet food, whether it's sugar or alternate sugars. But when, if I have some, one head wakes up and it starts sniffing around looking for a bit of sugary stuff. Now, if I'm onto that, that's fine. I can kind of talk myself down, back off the ledge, and he goes back to sleep and life returns as normal. But if I don't, then the second head wakes up and it gets all a bit harder. And then if I continue to kind of let Fluffy run free, the third head wakes up and it's really hard then. I'm in some sort of carb craving frenzy and it's back feels like it's back to where it was. I've got lots of strategies that I've put in place now to make sure that that those days are few and far between because I really, I don't care about, it's not the calories, it's not the weight, it's none of that anymore. It's just that feeling of out of control that I don't like. Hmm. Yeah. Jackie, can you just remind us, um, David Wolf? you know, he was actually talking about a lot about addiction and that's yeah. really the framing in a, you know, other other keto gurus talk about managing this addiction mm. and having those particular strategies. And I just want to take issue because Jackie's the moderator, so she can do the all-terrain vehicle, right? So she's mm. fine. She can moderate. It's not a problem. She can steer that thing off off track. I'm, I'm a little bit like you. I can't, mm. you know, like you're saying about the um, erythritols and xylitols yep. and those sorts of things. Like there, a lot of the keto baked goods will send me on that sort of bingy thing. Like I'll go mm. keep on going back for an mm. extra um, keto cookie. You know? yes. Even though it's keto and it's sort of it's health cleansed, it's good yeah. for me. But because it's got that non-calorific sweetener, there's something still in my brain neurophysiology that goes habitually, I'm going to go back to the cookie jar and I can have another one. It's good for me. I'm allowed to. So I just need to just yeah. stay on the path, please just do that and not wake my fluffy up as yeah, well. Yeah, keep so fluffy asleep because, yeah, he's 
my life so much easier when he is asleep. And it's really interesting. I, um, I do I talk quite a bit about addiction. It's like there's I have this concept that there's like there's three sorts of people and you've got people for whom they have a product, whether it's sugar or alcohol or gambling, and they do it rarely, you know, like they might buy a raffle ticket or put a bet on the Melbourne Cup or, you know, they have a piece of cake a couple of times a year. You know, it's just nothing to them. So you've got that kind of people. Then you've got the middle people that perhaps are eating more than they really want to, but it's not causing them too many issues. So again, there might be, you know, guys gambling perhaps 150 bucks a week and he wishes he wasn't gambling quite that much, but he can afford it. So it's not causing him any trouble. Or you've got a person that sits on the couch every night and eats, you know, half a block of chocolate and they wish they weren't doing that, but they don't have diabetes and they haven't put on lots of weight and they're, they're okay with it. And then you've got the third bucket and they're the people that go, you know, wow, even though I've got diabetes, I'm still eating all the things, the chips or the cakes or the lollies, or even though, um, you know, I, I, I have no money anymore, I've just sold my dog so I can put a bet on, or even though I've lost my job and my license, I'm still drinking. So that's the, that's that third bucket. And what happens is that the people that are selling the food, so the big food companies or alcohol companies or gambling companies, what they do is they go, oh, it's not our fault for the, the people in this, this third bucket. Everyone should just be like the people in the first one. They should just be moderate. They should just have it every now and then. That's not our job. And it's like, well, why then do you market to children who are susceptible and cast your net so incredibly wide? It's so that you can get all the people that are in the bucket and then blame them and say, well, they should just be in the other bucket. Hmm. And that's where that individual responsibility comes in, where that, you know, you need to be responsible. You need to put the seatbelt on. You need to not have that drink. You're not to light up. Yeah. You know, not to crack the can of Coke um, or, as you know, the, the sweet mm-hmm. the sweet or savoury food. Um, Jackie, um, I was just saying about David Wolf, the guilt, the romance and the debate. Yeah. And that's the sort of stuff. If there's triggers <laughs> that evoke guilt, that you romanticise about or you have that sort of internal dialogue as you do debate yeah. whether I should have it or not. Anything, action, behaviour, food choice that, that evokes any of those three things, you know that it needs to be off your list. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I think um, it's really it's really tricky because food is tied up with emotion as as a lot of i mean it's not just food it is as i said it's, it's alcohol um gambling in particular i see a lot of people with gambling issues and it's devastating because nobody knows it's such a secret like it's this secret thing and i don't know whether that's more helpful or less helpful because there's you know there's a lot of shame that goes with gambling um but eating's the same except you can't hide it <laughs> Like it's there. So it's then got, you've got this double whammy of the shame of, of overeating or binging or addicting or buying, you know, 52 packets of bullets and everyone can see it. And you have, you know, you've then got the stigma associated with, with being overweight or being obese. And, and the stigma pisses me off because people just love to judge other people and they just, and, and honestly, I'm going to sort of call out my own profession here because doctors are pretty bad at it. We, they will just say to a patient, 
you need to lose weight. What are you going to do to lose weight? And these are people that have struggled their whole life. And it is, it's so disempowering to say that to somebody. Yeah, because they wouldn't choose to be able to. No, nobody thinks. uh, if If they could do something about it, and they probably have been trying to do something about it, they would have done it. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they are either addicted, so have that sugar addiction, or they, or, or, and it can be both of these, or they're using the food to soothe emotional scars or emotional wounds. So it's really like, well, and in fact, it sort of works out. Most people will start using food to soothe emotional wounds and then fall into that third bucket of being addicted. Um, and again, it's so easy for companies that to take no responsibility, but they, they, they market like mad to us you know um i was just saying at the petrol station the other day there's these new things called noz ads and it's an ad it's a little you know on the petrol nozzle as you're putting it into the car there's some sort of you know ad for a slurpee or a chocolate bar of some sort so that's your first little glimpse of it so you weren't even thinking about it it's then in there then there's some sort of visual um auditory ad there's music that's playing stuff jingles and stuff like that so that's in your thing and then you walk in and the dude at the shop goes oh would you like you know mars bars are on special today you can have two for the price of one and you kind of just go oh, okay without even thinking realizing what's what's happened so it's really really wicked because then they just go, well, you should have just said no. It's like, well, you shouldn't have put the Noz ad, the music ad, the two-for-one ad. You know, if you need to do all of those things to sell your product, well, then where's your product's obviously not that good. Yeah. And they always put all the chocolates where you're queued up to pay for your petrol. Oh, absolutely. You only went for, pet- you only went for petrol mm. or fuel. Mm. And now you have all these things lined up in front yeah, of you. Yeah, you've got to run a gauntlet. And I... And I I do stand, sometimes stand there and look at them and think, hmm, in the past I might have picked that or I might have picked that or I might have chosen that. And it's quite tempting, but I'm, you know, mm. strong enough to say, no, actually, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So how was it for you being a, a, a medical practitioner, a GP, and obviously, you know, you were carrying weight and you ah. then had to sort of be telling your patients, uh, you need to lose some you know, some weight. Yeah. Um, did you, did any of your patients go, and what are you doing, Dr. Lucy? <laughs> well, fortunately, no, but because um, that, that that would be the, like, the, I would just want the floor to open up and, and swallow me up. And I suspect that subconsciously I didn't bring it up with them as often because I didn't want them to be judging me thinking I'm judging them. So I probably... Um, did what other people, what normal, you know, what the standard advice is, is gone, oh, well, you've got high blood pressure, you know, maybe if you lost a bit of weight, that would help. Here's some pills. That that was pretty much how I, that that's pretty much the standard kind of process. So, but you're absolutely right. Being an overweight doctor is slightly mortifying. Um, although now I can reflect back on myself and I'm much kinder. So again, it's that whole journey of, you know, I was pretty harsh on my own on my own self for being overweight and now I am not. So I, I'm much, and, and believe me, I, I, you know, yeah, I've lost 20 kilos. I certainly don't have a perfect body. It's, it's a wee, wee, not perfect. Um, and every now and then I have that thing of thinking, God, am I going to have people say, I can't believe she thinks she's a weight loss doctor. Look at her. She's, not, you know, she's, she's not even that thin. So, um, but then I just think, well, 
the aim in life is not to be thin. We're not, you know, we don't need to be judging ourselves on thin. Thinness is not a measure of being a good human. It's It's interesting because I actually had, um, when I was doing large undergraduate first year classes and, you know, I was obviously morbidly obese and teaching these these classes around the healthcare system, I actually had one student come up to me and say, how how dare you be teaching us this when you're not, you know, you're by, right. So, and you were saying about going to the GP for a completely different matter and the doctor hijacking the consultation and getting you to stand on the scale. Mm. And it's just like, I'm not here for this. I don't know why you're doing this, but they've obviously made it an issue about me standing on the scale. So mm. it's like, you don't think I know that I've got this issue and I've been trying to do stuff, but that's not what I'm here for today. Yeah. So it, it is fairly confronting when, you know, you're not walking the walk. You know, you're doing the talk, but you're not walking the walk. And there is that cognitive dissonance between. Mm. But I think your growth has really been that lived experience of how challenging it has been, but finding the solution and now obviously really crafting your practice and offering options. So that's, yeah. that's really great. So in, in your GP practice, mm. you said you like to, or you mostly work with people with mental mm-hmm. health. Have you have you been prescribing, and I put that in inverted commas, low carb for those people and have you noticed any difference? So uh, I've got a big range and the area that I actually work in is probably low socioeconomic area. Um, and so I see a lot of, I've actually got, I've got the whole, I actually see a lot of eating disorders and they go from the whole range of, you know, very underweight girls with anorexia and largely, I say girls because all of the patients in my practice are girls. Um, but again, all the way through to disordered eating, even in a bigger body. And I think that's probably one of the most underdiagnosed conditions. Um, yes, Louise is pointing to herself um, because people think, you don't have, you can't have an eating disorder if you're overweight or obese. How can you? Because you know, obviously, all you do is eat, and it's like, oh, you don't know. So, so that's been really eye-opening for me again in the last few years to just develop a little bit more understanding there. Um, and I do talk a lot about nutrition as part of therapy for for um, for all people, as you know, all all people with mental health, any, any actually all patients. My thoughts are that people who are not insulin resistant don't need to be super low carb. Like they they can be moderately low carb. Um, so you know, I, I'm I'm low. You know, I do 25. Well, actually, I don't count, but I, I know it's about 25, 30 grams a day, give or take. Um, so really, that low end of the low carb spectrum. But if somebody is metabolically flexible, they're active, they're well. They, they don't need to be down that low. They can be eating 100 grams of carbs, for example. That's still way less than the 250 to 450 grams that is recommended. So I often talk to them about that. And, and my biggest thing is really trying to get people to prioritise their protein because that, that really, I reckon, is one of our most nutrient deficient, you know, in the macronutrients people People love carbs because they're quick, they're easy, it's quick to make pasta. You can, you know, make pasta and you put on a jarred sauce and your dinner's add some cheese and your dinner's done in, you know, 45 seconds. So people do love that convenience of carbohydrate. 
Um, so just trying to show people that you can cook protein. You can cook a one-minute steak in one minute. Um, you can cook protein really quickly. It doesn't have to be hard and doesn't have to be complicated. So, yeah, I think that giving an option and demonstrating how they could put it into their life if they want to. Hmm. I just wish I had you noticed any improvement in mental health with people that change uh, it's their very hard at the moment because the pandemic's just taken over everything in mental health it's really hard to work out and, and again in melbourne you know we've had lockdown for such a long long time that that social withdrawal um is by far and away the overwhelming issue so, mm. you know, it's, and I think it's just evidence of the, you know, all the pillars of health that we talk about, obviously nutrition, sleep, um, stress management, some movement, some sunshine and social connection. And for a lot of us, we're missing those pillars at the moment. We're missing the social connection. You know, we've just come out of winter in Melbourne in lockdown where there's not a lot of sunshine going around. Um, you know, people are eating processed food because it's quick and easy and they're too tired. Um, so. It's kind of like once one of the legs, if you like, falls off, often so do all the others. So, yeah, yeah. just trying to help. Increase stress. Yeah. You know, the whole thing is increasing mm. stress yeah. on everyone. Yeah. So, again, it's that thing of meeting people where they're at. What can they do at the moment if they're in a state of distress or, or um, you know, as I said, there's, some, you know, some kids that don't live at home anymore, they're couch surfing, you know, that trying to talk to them about their nutrition is like the last thing on their list. Um, you know, I'm sort of trying to stop getting, helping them to stop smoking and maybe find some stable accommodation. All of those sorts of things uh, uh, get in the way of, of sometimes talking about nutrition. But I will always pop in there every now and then. What about, you know, a bit of steak? <laughs> steak would be good for your <laughs> iron deficiency. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I just wish that I had you as my GP, you know, having an appreciation for, I didn't necessarily say I had an eating disorder, but I certainly had disorderly eating. Yeah. And there is a category, you know, the eating disorder not otherwise recognised or EDNOS. Yeah. And, um, yeah, which sort of seemed to have fitted with not, you know, I had periods of binge eating, but it wasn't binge and purging, but it was yeah. obviously, you know, the, the emotional eating which was disorderly but not necessarily eating disorder, which led to obviously my morbid obesity. But I'm just so grateful that there are obviously, you know, even through your own journey that you've come to this state of enlightenment. Yeah. This epiphany or (laughs) epiphany. Um, (laughs) Epiphany. I know. And, you know, I think the thing that – the thing that has come out, and a lot of people in, in the low-carb world say this, that, you know, it is all about progress, not perfection. We are as, you know, a lot of women, and this is the other thing, people often think that women in bigger bodies are, are lazy or something, and they're often the opposite. They are the most driven, um, organised, perfectionistic people who are high-achieving in every aspect of their life except their food. And it's common. Are you? Did you just? Did you just call me out? <laughs> <laughs> me and my little color coded, um, you know, calendar here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> that's 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 twice in one week, Louise. Somebody's called you out on that. 
I think, um, okay. but it's, it is, it's, and it, it's when you've got, you know, like we've got, you know, our community at Real Life Medicine and, and women do then become, you know, they open up a little bit more and it's open up because, again, we often say that, you know, there's no, you can't hate yourself thin and you can't guilt yourself into being well and you can't shame yourself into losing weight. But that's how mm. we were taught, again, not our fault, but that's how you were taught in various, you know, older styled Weight Watcher community type things. And uh, my mum my mum went to one and I remember the person that either, uh, that put on the most weight during the week, so they all got weighed and everyone shared the number and the person that put the weight on had to wear a brooch of a piggy. So you just think it's amazing, isn't it? That and that was just standard. And you know, she'd go and she'd go, Oh, I hope I don't get the pig brooch tonight. And it was like, Oh, what does that do to us? You go into the sauna. Don't you go into the sauna to sort of sweat yourself <laughs> dehydrated like sweat the out. Well, this is But this is that whole thing of why people got disordered eating, because they didn't want to get the pig. So they'd starve themselves for three days before it. And then they'd be so hungry by the time they've had their way in, they didn't get the pig brooch, yay. And then their body would be and their brains go, oh, my God, feed me. And they'd then be, you know, on one side of the road. Binging. Go, go for the takeaway on the way yeah. home. Yeah. So, terrible. no, I think, I think it's coming a little way. There is a, a movement, I'm sure you're aware, health at any size, um, which has its foundation. It, 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 there's a couple of um, it's a health he- heavily aligned with a, a concept of intuitive eating, and intuitive eating talks about a little bit like you, Jackie, that you can have whatever you want, just don't have too much of it. Um, so if you are really craving chocolate, then don't deny yourself it. That doesn't work for me um, because you know I could let myself have it whenever I want, you know, all the time. So they work on that idea that if if something is denied, if there's scarcity then you will just focus on it and become hyper-focused on it and then cave anyway. So I like intuitive eating once you take all the sugar, all the sugary shit out because that's, remember, they're, they're all made to make us eat them. So it's not real food. It's very hard to intuitively eat processed food. Um, but if you're doing real food, then it's, then it's easy. Um, and the health of any- eat the butter. intuitively eat you know butter because then it becomes self-limiting right so when you intuitively eat the right mix of food then it's obviously becomes your society signals come back to you and it becomes almost self-limiting yeah totally and so the health at any size movement are help hopefully out there educating doctors on the idea that again this concept that sometimes your bmi i mean I guess if, if you've got a BMI of 40, you're going to have some health complications related to that. But, you know, doctors are out there chastising people with BMIs of, say, 31, 32, and that doesn't necessarily mean they're unhealthy. They might have beautiful metabolic rates, and yet you've got someone who might have a BMI of 27, 28 who's got fatty liver and they've got central obesity and they've got a whole heap of metabolic stuff going on, but nobody's calling them out and telling them that they should lose weight or putting them on the scales or making them feel terrible about themselves. Hmm. And BMI needs to be culturally specific because if we know our Pacific nations or, you know, 
in Australasia, like Samoans or Fijis or Maori, you know, that they are actually, you know, quite a large frame and they can carry that muscular. Mm. And they will have BMIs in their 30s and 40s, but may well be fine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If they're a fit rugby player or something. By the, um, in contrast to that, though, sadly, um, Pacific Islanders are way more prone to diabetes and they get their diabetes, as our as our Asian Southeast Asian cultures get their diabetes much earlier. Uh, Anglo-Saxon people have largely evolved, I don't know if evolved is the right word, but they can largely carry a lot more body fat before they develop their metabolic illness. Correct. And it's, um, harder here. it's harder to see here in, in Southeast Asia because they're sort of quite petite frames and, you know, when they not may not necessarily be obese because it's obviously um, the tofu, that tofu sort of fat yes. is for large amounts of processed foods here, large, very strong, ah. sweet, and it's rice and noodle as well as those double, double carbs. Mm. Yeah, and sweetened condensed milk from memory. <laughs> In the coffees. So, yes. Yeah. yeah. And I know. Well, terrible. I was reading that um, I think China's at 130 million people with type 2 diabetes. Um, it's just an astronomical number of people that are going to require, well, hopefully will get intense medical treatment, but may not. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating that all the, the nuances mm. of it and, and the different cultures and how. Each culture responds differently. Absolutely. And I think that's it also, you know, being culturally aware of people's foods and how that impacts them. And, again, it's hard, harder if someone is, um, you know, Southeast Asian, perhaps Indian, and they come and see me and I tell them, um, you know, maybe rice isn't so helpful for you, it, they, they have a fair bit of trouble adjusting to that idea um, because that's in every every single meal. Um, they have rice. They have curry mm. and rice and and um, you know, naan bread or chapatis. So just talking to them about just having the curry, that's what I do. But they look at me like I'm a weirdo. Yeah. It was interesting because I get yeah. that because I find it hard to have an, a curry without without rice. Mm. But if we have a homemade curry, that's easy. I just put it on vegetables. Yeah. In my head, I've just turned curry into soup. So it's not I sort of, you know, I have I have in a, in a bowl and it's just sort of like a nice soup. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And this is, we'll remember that we had Christine from Black People Keto, who was actually mm-hmm. really instrumental in bringing that um, Caribbean sort of flavors into, in, you know, with a twist, the, the low carb keto sort of thing. I think what we're missing now, Dr. Lucy, is actually getting our Indigenous or First Nations to be able to do Australian Black People Keto. That would be really mm. quite a good, a really, given that um, diabetes is actually quite uh, yeah, it's a massive in, problem in our First Nations. It's a massive problem. There, there are a few confounders, um, geography being a huge one, because still there's a lot of First Nation people who live very remotely in the Northern Territory and they don't actually have access to fresh food very often. So they do rely then on a lot of processed and packaged food. So trying to come up with a system where they could have fresh fresh meat, fresh veggies would be great. Um, but, yeah, that, yeah that, that would, I mean, I would love, love, love to be involved in a project in, in that 
somehow. You have to yeah, start future, one. Yeah, future research. Yeah. Actually. Let's put, a, let's put an application <laughs> yeah. to the NHMRC grant. Well, I'd have to do it collaboratively because it's. Um, I'm also very mindful of, you know, the white person coming in to rescue the Indigenous person Absolutely. and it would need to uh, not not be that. that. That's unhelpful. I think that's been proven time and time again. Mm. But I did actually do a talk on low carb in Darwin a couple of years ago, which um, which was really good because they I did chat to a couple of diabetic educators who had been worried about um, their Indigenous people who ate a lot of turtle and dugong, both which are very high in fat, and they were worried that this was a problem. Okay. No, this is perfect. They should be eating their culturally that what they ate, because you know Aboriginal people are have always been very lean, up until we came in and ruined it. So eat eat what they what they what they know, and yeah, if they could go back to their traditional diet, that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. It's a lot yeah. to be said about you know the colonization, which has wrecked a lot of the social fabrics. So. That's really, you're absolutely right, you know, collaborating with those relevant groups that we could, you know, somehow send and support, support and mm. advocate and get them participating in making that adaption. You know, how can we Perfect. make traditional foods more, um, yeah, keto yeah. or low-carb friend? Yeah. Well, and I reckon they would probably, you know, I think there's a resurgence of, of Indigenous people um, reclaiming their like their language and their culture and making sure that it doesn't die off in you know in, in the whitewashing of the world. Um, so yes, yeah, certainly then helping them spread their work back to other Indigenous people to eat their traditional diet because that their traditional diet was magnificent. I mean, it was it was low carb. That there is no doubt about that. We saw that in other populations like the. Maasai, those sorts of mm. other traditional hunter-gatherer sorts of things, and really going back to back to origins, and that really gets back to that real food, right? So even for yeah. um, the Anglo, the Anglo here, um, you know that it is. It's it's really about going back to those basic first principles. You know, cook like your grandparents. So, yeah, um, mm. yeah. We just make it simple. We tell um, our peeps to pick a protein. Add some veggies. If the protein's really lean, add some fat and add some flavor, some salt and some herbs. And that's it. If you do that, it's simple. Like it doesn't have to be complicated. And it makes the food delicious. You're full. You've, you know, hit all your nutrient goals without, you know, you don't have to track if you don't want to. Some people like tracking, some people don't. Over time, you know, it's, I'm not a tracker. Are you guys trackers? No. Nope. Yeah, Louise does a bit. Only, only, well, sometimes, yeah, sometimes I will, you know, get my, get my tracking on, but mostly, mostly not, but I am a daily tester. So I will test my, test my blood sugars and that's part of that accountability. So for me, it's about a feedback loop. So that's sort of, again, it's keeping the all-terrain vehicle on, you know, how do I know that I'm off the line? Um, Yes. For the longest time, I didn't weigh because the number... The number triggered that judgment, but yes. I've gotten over that. Ah, good. Except, except for today. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I went up 600 grams. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, again, it's that, that, that story and the narrative and the judgment that comes with that narrative. I've learned to sort of turn the volume down. But 
the tracking helps me keep on track with the accountability. So I'm a yep. because I'm an obliger, I need to have those accountability factors in, around me externally. I can't do that internally. Uh, yep. Gretchen Rubin would say that that's an upholder. I'm not an upholder. Yes. I'm definitely yes. external accountabilities that I need to build that in in terms of no loophole thinking. No, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's in for a penny, in for a pound is my loophole. Right, okay, right. yeah, yeah. So that's the, yeah. that's the, the, the off-tracky thing in the breakfast buffets. So when I'm at the hotel with the breakfast buffet, that's a, um, a free food. Yeah. Free food, free right. food loophole. Oh, yeah, free food, yes, yes. There's so many little loopholes that are, again, our subconscious, often subconscious brain offers us um, and this idea that you've paid for it, so you need to get your money's worth. And so you're going, right, well, I've got to get my money's worth. And so I often say to people, okay, let's actually put that into logic. So you've paid for it, so you've got your money's worth, and now you're coming to me and you've got to pay me to undo it all. So you haven't really got your money's worth at all because if you didn't eat it, you wouldn't have then had to pay me double anyway. So, yeah, just just coming up with alternate stories is what it is, isn't it? Other stories that mm. serve you well. And I think it's Hubert says about um, you, you can find reasonable ways of talking yourself yeah. into it. It's always very logical and very yes. simple. Your brain will offer you reasonable into- stories. It doesn't give you ridiculous stories. It'll give you reasonable ones and so that you, you can go, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. Um, it doesn't say, and it won't say, oh, here's a buffet, just eat everything you like. It's going to come up with a little reasonable story and it'll start off with, you know, just have a couple, you know, you've paid for them and and, and a, a couple won't hurt and everybody else is doing it and there are all these reasonable stories. And, you know, I have my, my reasonable story that still comes up is just have one, just have one. You can do one and it's just rubbish. I just can't do one. And now I actually say to myself, stop it. You know, that's not true. You never, ever just do one. So, yeah, calling yourself out a bit is helpful. So when we, we when we have the breakfast buffet, and that's the typical one, that's the free food we pull, you know, and we yeah. get paid for it. It's part of the accommodation package. We pay yes. for this, right? And it's the croissants and danishes, and it's like the way that I've gotten around that is you can only have a croissant when you're actually in France because they taste better in France. That's not going to oh, taste yeah, yeah. like a French croissant. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. Yes, yes. I can only yes. have a Danish Anna. in Belgium. <laughs> yep. Have you ever listened to um, Katrina Ubel's podcast? So Katrina Ubel's a weight loss doctor, um, kind of low-carb but not not overtly low-carb, but certainly talks about cutting out sugar and flour, but a lot of mind management stuff. And she talks about scarcity and this idea that, you know, sometimes we'll say to ourselves, well, I'll never get the opportunity to have this croissant ever again. And you're, you've already talked yourself out of that by going, actually, I can have it when I go to France. So that's not true. Because people do it on certain days, you know, like they have, I think she's American. So they have that Girl Scout cookie day. And suddenly everyone's eating Girl Scout cookies because, you know, it's a whole year till they come back again. And her thing is like, but they're actually just the same as this other biscuit that's in the supermarket all the time. You can have that whenever you want. So you don't need to kind of hoard in this scarcity mode. Hmm. Well, I find that quite helpful. So 
just before we finish, tell us a little bit about real life medicine and how you're helping people there. Okay, so Real Life Medicine um, is run by myself and my gorgeous friend, Dr. Mary Barson, and we have we run a series of programs. So we have a four-week um, The Doctor's Complete Guide to Low-Carb Living, which is really for, I guess, people who are new who also want some information to give to their people who, you know, their friends who will say, oh, my God, you're going to die if you eat all that bacon and that sort of thing. Then we run a 12-week program. The four-week program is just standalone. People can do it whenever they like. Three times a year we run a 12-week program, which is um, some, you know, content, so pre-recorded content, some coaching, live coaching with Mary and myself, and then a community. And then following that, people can join our membership if they want to um, because that's the it's called Momentum. And that's because that's where, the, you know, like lots of things, a four-week or a 12-week is not always enough for people to actually have their, you know, lifetime revolution of undoing all the stories. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so how can people find you? Ah, so they can go to our website, which is RL Medicine. Somebody took the Real Life Medicine one, so it's RL. Um, or Facebook, Insta, at Real Life Medicine. So, Dr. Lucy, we like to end the podcast with, you know, some of your sage advice. Hopefully for free. Thank you. Not just one, but three top tips, please. Okay. So my number one top tip is that you you do have to address the physiology and the psychology. So the physiology is the hormones that that drive obesity, largely insulin, by doing low carb. And the psychology is unpacking the stories in your head so that you can continue to do what you know you need to do and you can do it permanently. So that's the first tip, psychology and physiology. The second tip, and this is something that I have found super helpful, so it's a very pragmatic tip, is that I have particular boundaries in my life that I no longer eat in anymore. So the car used to be my sanctuary for eating food because I could scoff as much as I like, hide the wrappers, and if nobody saw me, it was like it didn't really happen. So now I don't eat in the car doesn't matter what I do not eat in the car it's a boundary um and so that kind of that that helps a whole heap of things so that just became kind of easy after a while ago right well I I just don't eat in the car and now my car's super tidy and very clean so that's helpful um and my third tip I think is if you find yourself driving off the road falling off the wagon stopping and starting don't you know, be kind to yourself. Recognize that all that is happening is that you are using a tool to soothe some sort of emotion and that you may not have worked that out yet. So really being very kind. Being kind to yourself is not a hall pass. Being kind to yourself doesn't mean, oh, I've been kind to myself. I'm going to have 22 donuts. That's not a hall. That's not kind. But being kind to yourself when you've made what people might call a mistake or you might be off your plan, recognising it. Because when you're kind to yourself, you can reflect back and see what what was it that happened and what could I do differently next time. If we're not kind, we don't want to reflect back. We just beat ourselves up and the summary then becomes just be better. And that's unhelpful. Hmm. There we go. They were long tips. No, they're good. Really, I mean, the, the physiology and the psychology is really what we have to start with. Mm. But then you you bring that into being with setting your boundaries, mm. whatever mm. they are, 
So for you, it's not don't eat in the car for someone else. It might be don't eat while you're reading a book yeah. or, you know, whatever that is. Um, and then, yeah, we have to be kind to ourselves because we've been beaten up so much over the years with dieting and the other dieting clubs that love to, like you say, um, and shame. give you the, the piggy badge. <laughs> yeah. And we don't need that anymore. No, not but, at all. But don't, but don't use, but don't use it as an excuse. No. Yeah. No. You've got to put your boundaries around that. But I think it's important to reflect on what emotions you're soothing. You know, what is it that you're, you're soothing? And that gets back to the tip number one about the psychology. So, you know, you really need to be in reflecting on and not beating yourself up, but it's understanding, giving yourself context to well, what, what hurt or pain, you know, what am I, yeah. what am I soothing? What am I? And the interesting thing is that when we, a lot of us are not very emotionally literate. We don't actually have good language to describe mm-hmm. our feelings. We'll just use I'm stressed or I'm anxious or I'm crossed. So big, broad things. And when you can actually get right down a bit further and go, actually, I'm, I feel resentful, that, that's different. And you can actually work on that because then you go, okay, well, that that's interesting. Resentment is really common, really common in women because we're always saying yes to things we don't want to do and we get resentful of it. And we say that because we don't want to be burdened with the guilt of saying no. So we swap guilt for resentment and then we just eat to shovel it all down because it feels terrible. And it's really interesting that you say that yeah. because I think that as a parent, when I had, uh, when my son was a really little, I actually had a page on the fridge that was just of these words describing emotions and it was really acknowledging that um, certainly for males have fewer connections between their brains so they don't actually are able to be as you said emotionally literate and typically boys get stuck in bad you know bad Mm. and mad and I'm angry and Mm. when you sort of say look you know I can sense your frustration and, you know, you look, you, you look really disappointed right now, you know, when they're being toddlers and you're just sort of, you know, having a tantrum. And it's really interesting because um, what he says to me now as an, as, as an adult and on what I sort of said, look, you know, I'm actually really quite concerned or disappointed or frustrated. And he goes, Mum, that's just code. You're really pissed off with me. And it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Whatever. I'm just, I am concerned, you know. Yeah. 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 A lot of people come, again, you know, doing a lot of mental health, people come in with, and they'll go, it's my anxiety playing up. So this this feeling, their anxiety, it's their becomes their identity, you know, like this thing that they just have with them. And it's really when you, again, pack right down, unpack what, what, what they're talking about, it's often not anxiety. It might be they're uncomfortable about something. And discomfort is something we're not very good at sitting with anymore. We're very reactionary as a society. Yeah. We don't pause. We don't train anybody for discomfort. We're, we're, you know, soothing our kids very quickly. We don't let them experience things. We don't want them to have to experience hurt, pain, disappointment. But they have to because that's the only way they learn mm-hmm. that it, go, it goes away. 
If we don't fix well, it for them, it goes away. And I know because I'm feeling really disappointed that we're going to have to finish this podcast. I know. It's just like, we're sorry, just going to keep this. On. I don't know. It's just like, I'm so sorry, Dr. Lucy, but maybe we can have you back on again. Um, so, you know, turn that frown upside down, girl. <laughs> absolutely well and you girls would definitely be coming on to our podcast because that's how the world goes thank you yes absolutely so thank you for being with us today thank you very much for inviting me thank you it's been fun great oh louise that epiphany that cracked me up i couldn't stop laughing for ages (laughs) can you imagine if you you'd really know when you've named your business wrong (laughs) <laughs> when you get feedback like that. Oh, it it must be a branding nightmare. Whoever was the you know, the marketing person, obviously they didn't do their market research very well. I'm sure that, you know, whatever focus group or yeah, sample that they took, they didn't sort of, you know, work that one out. But I'm glad that she's changed it and she's real life medicine now. So that's obviously branded you know there's no confusion there yeah and great that they can do that although she did say someone else had the web the website um, sure Sure. yeah another thing to look out for when rebranding yeah so you was mentioned earlier that you had listened to the to the podcast well you know what well certainly from from dr mary and, and dr lucy what were some of the the key takeaways that you really enjoy with their approach I like well. There's a few things. One, they're quite short episodes, so they most not. They sometimes interview people, but mostly people that they've worked with who've had a great breakthrough. But quite often, they're they're quite short episodes, and they just take a topic and make it break it down really simply. And uh, they both have some great metaphors that they use. So um, we heard the one in the podcast about you know coming off plan or falling off the wagon it's not so much falling off the wagon as driving your car off the track and then you've just got to drive it back on but she has one similar to Dr Jason Fung where she talks about the woodshed and the kindling versus the logs which is always great um trying to think what are the ones but they just take a little topic and then they will um talk on that one topic um which is they're great. I really enjoy listening to them. And that's obviously if um, if the listeners get a chance to sort of see their, their social media presence and that's exactly what she was doing in the car. So she would have these stream of consciousnesses you know, and having that sort of discussion. And speaking of metaphors, I think that's the approachability of that persona that she's really, you know, projecting about Fluffy. You know, don't let your Fluffy run free. And that really spoke to me in terms of being a Harry Potter sort of you know, fan as well so there's so much that's you know when we hear these things and they resonate with those stories that we keep telling ourselves about yes and she providing the metaphors is that imagery yes I can see how you know fluffy running free is a bad thing so yeah and and you know the advice that she gives with that based on her lived experience and her medical practice as well so you know Dr Lucy's the bomb really yeah and it's, it's about those different heads, isn't it? One head comes up. It's almost manageable. But if the three are up, it becomes not so manageable. 
but not forgetting three is really where David Wolf, you know, sort of says about the, the guilt, the romance, and, you know, the debate. So, you know, maybe Fluffy's heads are about those sorts of stories that we tell ourselves. Mm. Yeah. So thank you, Dr. Lucy, for, um, you know, sharing sharing all of those great advice. You know, certainly we can't hate thin and we can't shame ourselves and we can't guilt ourselves and, you know, that it really is um, really great to, to bring all that together and we wish you and Dr. Mary all the very best with your real-life medicine, um, you know, programs. What a gift, you know. It doesn't have to be exclusively Australian, you know. That's It's got a yeah. a universal appeal. Yeah, because it's online, so it's easy. As we know, we can work with anyone now, nowadays. Yeah, we've proven that, haven't we, Jackie? We're, you know, me in Bangkok and, and you in the UK. So um, we're having a long-distance relationship, aren't we, Jackie? <laughs> so where can we get the show notes for Dr. Lucy's episode? The show notes can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero six four. Thanks, Jackie. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle fabulouslyketo1 and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication.